Canadian Military History Podcast. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Before I get into today's guest, I'd like to review some of the feedback that I've gotten, especially with regards to the promo that was released just a couple of weeks ago. First of all, on iTunes, I got a bit of feedback here. I got five stars from someone called Alex from Ontario. This was on the 21st of January, 2014, and he entitles his feedback as Very Interesting Podcast. He goes on to say, as one of the only Canadian military history podcast, it is very well produced. You are very well spoken. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much, Alex. And I hope that you're still enjoying the podcast. Maybe you can write something for the guest book. And hopefully you can sign up for the Canadian military history podcast Facebook page. Speaking about iTunes, I need to confirm that, yes, all the episodes are accessible on iTunes now. So there was a little bug in the system last time around. I said I was going to fix it, and I am confirming that, yes, that is indeed fixed. You can access all the episodes through iTunes, through iTunes category. So if you're jumping in late, hopefully you're not starting with this episode. If you're jumping in late, hopefully you're starting at episode zero. But nevertheless, if you're jumping in late, you can come in and pick up the episodes right from the start. As I just mentioned, on January 11th, I released a promo for the podcast. I was prompted to do that by some fellow podcasters. They were curious to know if I had a promo and I didn't have one, so then I had to produce one. So what's happened since our last episode? I got a pretty good review on the Two True Freaks episode 398 of the Star Trek Monthly Monday, and I was really appreciative to hear how much they enjoyed the podcast. Now, I don't know if you picked up that I said episode 398, which meant that they were only two episodes away from episode 400 on their podcast. And they do a great job out there with all the different movie reviews, comic reviews, going back, old TV series, things of that nature. And they produce a lot of entertaining and fun shows. Now, the reason I highlighted episode 398 is because on their episode 400 of Comics Monthly Monday, they actually played the promo. And what happened, I'm sitting there listening to their show, their episode 400 of Comics Monthly Monday, and they they go through their intro, and then suddenly I hear my promo, and I'm going, well, what's going on? Did my player switch to my own show? I was confused for a second, and then I realized that they were actually playing my promo in their own show. So it it was a little bit of a thrilling moment. I hope you can appreciate how impressed I was that the promo actually made it to their show. And uh, it was quite a funny little moment. I'm driving along, hands-free, of course, and I suddenly hear my own show, and that's not what I selected. But anyhow, I'm really grateful for not only the guys from Tutu Freaks and the other shows that I listen to for prompting me to get this off the ground, but also for boosting my show by giving me a great review on Star Trek Monthly Monday and playing my promo on Comics Monthly Monday. And that is the Two True Freaks, and they can be found at twotruefreaks.com. So moving on, I don't have any other feedback to review. 
So let's get on to our guest. Today my guest is W02 Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee is one of the most interesting characters that I've ever met. And without getting into my own episode here, anytime I see Sam, it's time to sit down and just listen. He'll just talk your ear off, but it's all stuff you want to hear. It's all stuff you want to listen to. He started off as a member of the Toronto Scottish Regiment, and then he was recruited into what we now know as the Devil's Brigade. So in other words, the first special service force. This was an elite force that was raised to undertake special operations during World War II, and that kind of fits their name. They were paratroopers, they were mountaineers, they were ski-born, they were specialized in many different fields of military skills. The interesting thing about the 1st Special Service Force is that they were raised at about the same time as the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion. So there was a bit of competition to grab paratroopers for both units, and there there was a bit of rivalry going on there. Now, the other interesting thing about the Devil's Brigade is that they were a Canadian and American force. So they were a multinational force that were raised for a common purpose, and they were raised and trained in Helena, Montana, in 1942. Now the next interesting note is, you might draw the parallel, that there was a film called The Devil's Brigade, which is based on those special service force members who trained at Fort William Henry Harrison in Montana. Sam McGee doesn't actually make an appearance in that movie, but perhaps there are some composite roles that he might have filled in. The special service force saw a bit of a rebirth in 1977 when the second combat group combined with the Canadian Airborne Regiment to form the second special service force, and they served until 1995. And it was a combination of regiments such as the second regiment of the Royal Canadian Horse Artillery, the Royal Canadian Dragoons, 22nd Air Defense Regiment, 2 Combat Engineer Regiment, 1st Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, and the Canadian Airborne Regiment, 2 Field Ambulance, 2 MP Platoon, 2 Service Battalion, 2 Intelligence Platoon, and 427 Tactical Helicopter Squadron. The Special Service Force, well, the 2nd Special Service Force was disbanded in 1995. Now, if you were to meet Sam McGee today, you would see a small old man with a quiet voice who needs some help to get around. Yet, you'd see his chest full of medals that extend past his arm, and you'd know that this person's got some story behind him. Now, if you took the time to sit down and talk with Sam, it wouldn't take very long for you to know that this person is an exceptional soldier. Sam says the medals tell the story of the wearer, but that's not enough to know the story of Sam. You have to sit down and listen to what he's got to say. And he has a lot of insight into leadership, into training, and he always wants to contribute and he always wants to give back. So without any further lead-up, here's my interview with WO2 Sam McGee. QMSI McGee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be invited. Sam, you and I met at the cadet inspection at Fort York Armory when I was the RSM of the Toronto Scottish Regiment. I think that would have been maybe in 2006. Right. I go as often as I can to functions of those regiments I have served with or organizations that I belong to, like the Legion and so on, when I can and how I can. I feel I'm showing the physical support for these organizations. The other thing which is very important is that the youngsters see the old sweats with all their medals on and uh, they you need the opportunity to talk to the old sweats. And not enough is done with regards to providing the opportunity for cadets to talk to the veterans and know what the medals are all about. 
And for some of the veterans, by the way, it's difficult for them because they're not aware of the makeup of the medal or the reason for the medal, whereas medals tell the story of the wearer. And it's very, very important because World War II medals are no longer on issue or available except to make up for those families that are looking for the awards for their family member. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Sam. I happen to recall just a few weeks ago you were doing that very thing at the Christmas dinner for the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada. And I know that many people took an opportunity to speak with you and to meet you and to learn about your service. Right. That's why when I go to these functions, I always say, let me sit with the men. That's right. And I always like to sit with a different group of men. Amazingly, by the way, at the Queen's Zone, here's a young man sitting across from me. We've known each other for eight years and didn't know until that night. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Isn't it? Okay, so where do we go from here? Next question. Well, from here, Sam, we go into the four questions. So why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? I guess at the time it wouldn't have been the Canadian Armed Forces. It would have been simply called the Canadian Army. Yep. Well, uh, I'd already tried getting in the Navy when I was 14 and got caught and kicked out in the RCNVR at Sunnyside. And so they sent me back home again and I went to school again. And then Dad died and, of course, there I am now the breadwinner. And I could make more money joining the Army than I could on Civvy Street, although I was making a good dollar. But can you imagine a dollar ten a day to start? And I was better off. And what happened was I got support from the government and I got the same allowance as a married man for my mother and my brothers and sisters. The only difference was I didn't get the marriage allowance, which was $20 a month. I never knew till years after that had I lost my life, my mother would have received a pension until my brothers and sisters all graduated or quit school. And so look at the support that she had that we didn't even know anything about. Right. And, of course, just like everybody else, I wanted to do my part. So off you go, and I try to get in. And when I first went down to get in, as I say, I got rejected the Navy, Army, Air Force because I was a puny little thing. <laughs> but I look at the pictures and say, you couldn't stop anything. So what happened was that I finally got into the Army. Then off I go to basic training in North Bay. And then from North Bay, I go to Sri Rivers, Quebec. And as I had originally been a member of the Toronto Scottish, I went to Sri Rivers, Quebec and took the machine gun course, machine gun course and mortars. And I was uh, rejected again. I kept getting on the uh, draft for the Toronto Scottish in England and I got caught underage and they put me on an NCO course, you name it. Oh, yeah, and I volunteered as lifeguard. You know what? They never asked me if I could even swim. <laughs> and here I'm the lifeguard. I was training for cross-country running and what have you. And uh, the next thing I knew, somebody said, they're looking for guys to be paratroopers. I said, what's that? Oh, they jump out of airplanes. And I'm saying, why would they jump out of airplanes? But I said, inquisitive as hell. And here I'm in my fatigue clothes, heading over to the pool. And I go knock on the edge of this door. And the voice says, come in. I come in. He told me to get the hell out. And I wouldn't get out until I got my name on the list. So that's how I got in the first special service force. I defied authority every step of the way. <laughs> and I got my name on the list, and geez, I got on the draft with Dennis Finn, Metro Chairman. Yes, great guy. And Bill Dinette. So the three of us were off to uh, Helena, Montana. All three of us got turfed. I broke my ankle, Dennis straightened his ankle, and Bill Dinette broke his arm. So here's the three of us coming back to Canada again. I came back in handcuffs. <laughs> I kept disappearing at the hospital, so they handcuffed me to the bed. 
And on the way back, the three of us thought we'd get back in the airborne. All three of us got back in the airborne. I was the only one that made it to the force. And what happened was that when I got to Toronto, I plagued them all the time. And the next thing I know, I'm in Longdale with the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion. And of course, there was something going on between the force and one can para, but I had no knowledge and I was a private. What the hell do I know? And uh, uh, are you ready? Yeah. On the course, I was put on charge. I had two jumps to go. And I went before Colonel Bradbrook. And he said, did you plead guilty? I said, nope. Marched me out and marched the other three guys in together and they got one day CB. I got in, they gave me 14 days. So anyhow, the next thing I know, they gave me a pass and I'm supposed to be on CB. And I wonder what was going on. And I snuck down to the parade square and here's Major Beckett. Major Beckett's recruiting. Now, originally when he went to the first Can Perry, he almost wiped out the first Can Perry. But this time he only got seven and me. And I come out from behind the buildings. And joined in and he said, and where'd you come from? I said, behind the buildings. And I looked at the CO and the RSM and I said, he doesn't want me in his battalion and nor does he and I don't wish to be here. I'm a force man. He said, you're what? I said, that's right. I already washed out in the force. He said, fall in there. And I qualified on Friday, left Saturday for Hell of Montana. I'm the only original and reject and uh, replacement. <laughs> Okay? Absolutely. So I got back, but what happens is now I had to catch up. Right. I had to catch up on all that training. So we trained every night from 6.15, every night, and Saturday and Sunday. But it was unreal and unique when you look back. Can you imagine sitting out, uh, me, a private, sitting out in the range, and I got a six-foot table behind me with all the weapons, all the weapons. And to my left is the uh, communication phone, and that's our, on the phone to the butts. And they say, you all here for the day, fire your convenience and your will, and you must be through with this uh, these goddamn weapons by 4.30 and pack them up and wash them down. So can you imagine sitting there firing? I fired more ammunition in 15 minutes than I had in my whole life. <laughs> and I just sat there firing my ass off. <laughs> but what an opportunity. Absolutely. It was unreal. And, of course, I came back to the force. And the force already had that attitude, you've got to work your way in. I had a royal battle to make my way in back into the force, regardless of my past. It was unreal, but I made it. Absolutely. And I did things that other people wouldn't do, and I tell the first day on bayonet fighting, bare bayonets, that I'm in front of the staff sergeant from the U.S. Army. Anyhow, they said the on guard, etc., and they said lunch, and I see a blood-curdling scream, and I went after the staff sergeant. He panicked, and I chased him down to the order room. He went right in the order room and put the bane right through the goddamn panel of the door. And out come this captain. He said, what's going on here? This staff sergeant says, that goddamn Canadian is wild. He said, he's crazy. <laughs> the captain looked at me and said, you're the new kid. I said, yes, sir. Take this staff sergeant up on the hill and show him how to use that f***ing bane, will you, private? See, this is a force so different. Yeah. In every approach to everything, it was the individual. Like, Josie made the decision, and that was it. You know, they didn't him, ha, screw around, nothing. It was unreal. And they automatically thought that because of the Canadian knew how to ski. <laughs> so they sent me down to the quartermaster stores to get skis. And as I'm walking down there, I'm saying to myself, Jesus Christ, what? I don't know any of those skis. So anyhow, I get down there and I walk in and then you've got to be as bold as a bastard, like everything you do in the forest is bold as a bastard. And I turn around and here's this quartermaster guy. He said, yeah, I said, I'm McGee. Oh, yeah, the Canadian, he said. Well, he said, what kind of boots would you like? Boots? 
I wore ordinary boots with my skis with just a toe strap. And I looked at him and I said, I'm from Canada. We only want the best. <laughs> well, what is the best you have in stock? I got the best pair of boots you ever wanted to ski with. And I got the skis and the poles and all the stuff that went with it, everything in the Arctic training stuff. And then he puts a can of paint on the table and a paintbrush and a file and sandpaper. So what's that for? He said, oh, he said, you got to scrape the skis. He said, and right down to the bare bones, he said, and paint them white. So we, each individual did his own skis and poles, okay? Yep. And if you visualize the hut, what happened was they took three of our summer huts and pushed them together and made them into a section. If you look at the picture of my thing, there are 14 pairs of footwear underneath the bed alone, <laughs> which crossed poles above my head, and the skis were on the end of the shack, and you had two pot belly stoves, and that was it. And we were working. And it was not uncommon. There was no such thing as ours. There were parades. What they didn't call them parades. Parades sometimes, assembly. But uh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's it. You got one hour to get ready and on the truck. That's it. Breakfast, the whole works. You go to the kitchen. They're, they're ready, waiting for you. They feed you like you've never seen before. Then you're on the trucks and you're into the foothills of the Rockies. And there I am, my first day in the force on skis, and they appoint me the runner. It's pitch black. And this guy says, see that light? Yeah. I said, y'all make your way up there. By the time I got there, it's broad daylight. I'm looking for Captain Josie. Well, the new weasels had arrived. And, of course, they're play toys. I finally get to this spot, and as I say, it's broad daylight. And he says, hi, I'm looking for Captain Josie. This guy said, he just went that way in the weasel. Well, Christ almighty, there I am up on the top of the Rockies, and now I'm on a downhill run. I got to tell you, I was on my ass. I almost split myself in a tree. <laughs> it was unreal. And I wound up at the end of the day and didn't know what was going on. Next thing I know, the very pistol went off, and I said, what's that? They said, the scheme's over. So I said, what does that mean? Well, make sure you're on prayer at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. 3.30 in the afternoon, you're in the Rockies, and you don't know where you are. And all they say is, be on prayer at 8 o'clock. I said, I beg your pardon? See ya, and they took off. <laughs> well, here I got the machine gun in my rucksack, and I hit a bald spot, and I went ass over the kettle. And I'm sitting on the ground, and I, when they revived me, and they got me up, and I was torn in the groin. And these two big six-footers said, give us a ski pole, and they told me into camp. It was unreal, but the standard was there. Did you belong? It was up to you. It's hard to describe in some cases, but I try to make it as plain as I can that life was a challenge every second in the force. And I mean that, every second. And I was a puny little 135 pounds if I weighed 135 pounds. <laughs> I was a little kid. How I survived, I don't know. Anyhow, we went on for the training and we went to Virginia and we set the records and the records still stand in Virginia at the Amphibious Training School. Nobody has matched our records. When we arrived in Virginia, Fredericks was hauled before this big shot the Navy and said about, you control your animals, or we will. And those damn shore patrols, boy, they used those billy cubs like they were toys. So anyhow, this high-ranking officer threatened Fredericks. So the next morning at breakfast, uh, in walked Fredericks, and Fredericks said to the, I think he was an admiral, he said, uh, I hear you had a problem last night. And, you know, he started like you'd never believe, 20, 30 people always around somewhere. So Fredericks took him to his quarters and showed him that we had already invaded his 
quarters and booby trapped and was going to blow his ass all to hell. And it was all real McCoy. It wasn't phony or just pretending that it was there. It was there. Frederick says, don't screw with my men. Amazing, eh? Yeah, absolutely. So, Sam, what was the world like when you joined? Oh, tragic, because we were just going through poverty. Yeah. The war brought us food, money, work, stability, joy. It was unreal. So you can imagine a guy who's starving to death and suddenly gets a job in the armed forces making a dollar ten a day plus support for his family. He's on he's in heaven. Yeah. That was about the size of it. The war made the world come alive. Because hmm. see all the other countries around the world were involved somehow, some way. That's right. And by the way, at that time, in my research, I discovered that we had anywhere from a military attache of one person to a group of in every country in the world representing Canada. It was unreal. Yet we were so tiny, and our forces were so tiny. And can you imagine the Toronto Scottish coming on parade one day, and, and they announced that they're going active as a unit, and bang, right there, don't even have time to get on the phone, half of them to phone home, hmm. in or out. The RSM couldn't make it, and Stu Diamond, I think, was the senior W02 at the time, and he got the appointment and so on. But it was unreal, and guys went to the military officers' training school, and it was the 90-day wonders. They went to school for 90 days, and they became officers. One of our guys told how his group were in university, and they decided to volunteer. He said they volunteered one day. They hadn't finished graduation, but they got their degrees, and they didn't even have any basic training. They were on the 91er course, and they became officers. Right. See, and if you look back and look at the Toronto Scotch itself, you look at the history of the Toronto Scotch, and what was the role of the people who became commanding officer agents and so on? When you stop and think of a bank manager suddenly is a battalion commander, what the hell experiences he got? Right. He took his officer training course, his 90-day wanted to get his commission and get his education, and yet now he's a commanding officer. Wow. <laughs> think about it. By the way, the Canadian Army standard was extremely high because we were small and on a unit basis and so on. So there's no comparison with the American Army or anything else because they're mass. Now, Sam, you touched on a little bit about what you were like. You tried to join when you were 14. You said you weighed 135 pounds. So good. Yeah. <laughs> with a coat on. That's right. What else can you tell me about you when you joined, what you were like? I can't even tell you the number of times I've been rejected by the Navy Army Air Force. And the night we're going to get sworn in, would you believe the guy who rejected me is right there. And I'm at the back of the group of about 20, and he doesn't see me. And I was fortunate and got sworn in. The same guy who rejected me didn't even see me get sworn in. He was right there. Amazing. And we were in the Canadian National Exhibition, of course. The horse palace was the barracks, okay? And the old roller coaster there, the stables from World War One were still there. And they still had horses for ceremonial things and what have you. And by the way, that old building was, which is a restaurant now, that was a medical center. And my introduction to seeing these old movies on DD, and when I saw them, I was so sick, I vomited. <laughs> I had to clean up the vomits. <laughs> you know, what an exposure for a kid. Didn't know which end was up, let alone VD. And sometimes when they talked, it went right over my head, hit the wall and came back, because I never, I was young and innocent and didn't know nothing. 
I thought I was full of piss and vinegar, but I was nothing. The rest of Sam's story is found on part two. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.